Let us pray. Lord, we come to you in this morning. We come to you in this time. We are thankful that you desire for us to be in a relationship with you, that you desire to be in a relationship with us. Help us to allow your word to help us to grow. In this time, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we are now to the New Testament. We kind of touched on the Old Testament a little bit uh, back at Christmas, right? We talked about the birth of Jesus. But today we get to chapter 23, and we're going to talk about Jesus coming and his ministry. And you might be familiar that John the Baptist was chosen by God for a special purpose, right? He was chosen by God to prepare the way for Jesus' coming, to help the people understand who Jesus was and why it was important for him to be coming to them. But John the Baptist is an interesting choice. I mean, it says that John the Baptist uh, clothed himself in camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And so that was very strange for that time. But you know what's interesting about God? As you noticed as we've been going through this story, that God uses very unlikely people to do his work. He chose a shepherd, David, to become a king and to lead his people. He chose Rahab, a prostitute, to become a very special ally for God's people. And now he chooses John the Baptist to be the forerunner of Jesus, to prepare his way. And we look at that and you say, you know, if David, if Rahab, if John the Baptist can, can do that work that God calls him to do, then can't you and I do that work as well? I mean, it's not like we look at these people and they were extraordinary people or they're out of the ordinary people, and we'll see that also as we get into Jesus calling the disciples. And so that, that lifts us up and say, it's not like you have to have a certain position, a certain place, a certain status to be used by God. God calls all of us, to be used by him. And so Jesus' ministry starts when he comes and John the Baptist baptizes him. John the Baptist has that special pleasure, that special honor to baptize Jesus. And then Jesus goes off into the wilderness, right? He goes for his preparation, his, his preparation for this ministry that he is going to do for the Lord. And then while he's in the wilderness, along comes Satan. Satan comes to tempt Jesus, right? And what is his first temptation? Now, if you were fasting for 40 days, if someone was fasting 40 days, and you were going to tempt them with something, what would you tempt them with? Food, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? I know that, that I fasted from time to time, and, and Maybe I fasted like a day and a half one time. I think it's the longest I've ever fasted. Maybe some of you have fasted longer than that. But I got to tell you, even by the end of one day, if I see food, if someone talks about food, if I smell something about food, not even if food isn't even around, my mind is on food, right? And so you can only imagine that Satan's like, bread, bread. You have power, Jesus. See that stone? Aren't you hungry? Turn that stone into bread. And just the mention of bread would get Jesus' mouth watering, right? What a temptation that would have been. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, 
He says, his food is the very word of God. It is the word of God that sustains him. And so Satan gets to his second temptation. He says, okay, well, you're supposed to be special, right? So the angels are going to protect you. The angels are going to watch over you. So let's go up to that high temple over there, and why don't you just jump off that temple, throw yourself off the temple, and because you're so special, because you have this ministry that God wants for you, nothing's going to happen to you, right? The angels are going to protect you. Let's, let's just uh, have a test. Let's see what happens. Come on. Look at it hurt, right? And so Jesus, again, what does he do? He quotes scripture to him, and he says, we should not test God. So Satan goes on to his third temptation, and he says, power. Everybody wants power, right? God has allowed me to become the, the king of this earth. I have all power on this earth. I have so much power. If you just bow down to me, Jesus, if you bow down to me, I will give you power over all the earth. I will give you this special power. And Jesus, again, says that we are to serve God and God alone. And with that thwarting of Satan, Satan is left with no power over Jesus, and he leaves. In fact, I love the way the scripture says it. It says, he leaves for a more opportune time, right? You got to know that Satan looks for those opportune times, those times when you're maybe weak, those times when maybe you're in the presence of what may be your personal temptation, and then Satan attacks, right? The Bible tells us that Satan roar, uh, um, prowls around ready to, to devour. He's looking for that opportune time, that moment, that experience that you might be a little weak where he can tempt you and try to get you to stumble and fall. But when he is resisted by Jesus, when he is resisted by us, he leaves. He leaves us alone for a more opportune time. doesn't mean he's not going to come back, but he leaves for a more opportune time. The power of God's word deflects the magnetism of darkness. I don't know about you, but I'm a Star Wars fan, and uh, I... I'm kind of prone to the, the first three Star Wars movies, although they weren't the first three in the series, right? But they were the first three. In one of the movies, in the, in the second movie, right, there's this big fight, right? Big battle between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Darth Vader has gone to the dark side. And Darth Vader feels the power of the Force in Luke, right? He's trying to turn him to the dark side. Come, he says, come with me to the dark side. I'll teach you how you can have even more power. And it's not working. And so finally he says, and I hopefully, you know, if you're, for some of you that might not know it, and then all of a you watch the movies, it's going to mess it up for you because it's a big scene, right? <laughs> it's like the biggest scene of all the Star Wars because he says, and you probably even know this, even if you haven't seen it, you probably heard it, right? What does he say to him? Luke, I am your father, Right? Big, big line, and Luke is dumbfounded by this, right? What could be more surprising than that statement? My father is Darth Vader. My father is, is in the dark side. He's powerful in the dark side. Come, he says, come, and we will rule together, father and son. Temptation, right, to come to the dark side. But here in this scene, you see that Luke lowers his lightsaber, and he says, no, I'm not going to fight you. He says, no, I'm not going to go to the dark side 
He resists the temptation, and in doing that, he wins the battle. See, the Word of God allows us to resist in many ways, but I'm just going to mention two. The first is how by God's Word leads us along the path of righteousness and strengthens us against the power of sin that lurks at our door. Word of God leads us into the path of righteousness. When you see the underlying parts, please read with me. Psalm 119.11. The psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart so that what? That I might not sin against you. A word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. This truth has served me well throughout my life. When I have times of temptation, if I can recall certain scriptures that help me with that particular area, it strengthens me to know what is true because Satan loves to throw these little lies in there, doesn't he? He tries to deceive us. He tries to to get us to go a different way. And when we know the word of God, when we know the truth, we know what path we're supposed to be on. But if we don't know the word of God, then we can easily be led astray. We can give in to these lies, give in to this deception, and Satan can cause us to stumble and sin. The second way that the word of God allows us to resist is that Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, right? He's called the word of God in John 1, helps us to resist the dark side. We cannot do it on our own power, but with Christ, because of his death and resurrection, because of the power he imparts to us, we, through Jesus, can have the power to resist the temptation of Satan, to resist the temptation of being pulled over to the dark side. Well, after the wilderness, oh, I forgot this. Here we go. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, wonderful verse in regard to this. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will what? He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a great truth that there's nothing you're going to face that you can't overcome because God provides the way of escape. God provides the power. God provides the ability to resist the temptation. And one of the biggest ways that we just talked about is by knowing Scripture and by quoting Scripture. If you feel tempted about something and you quote Scripture, you might even want to do it out loud. You might quote Scripture out loud. That Scripture will bring power into your life and will push Satan away from you. And Satan will leave and not tempt you again until another opportune time, right? Jesus had been in meditation for 40 days spending that time with the Father, spending that time of preparation for what God was going to have him to do. And when he was tempted, he was prepared because he knew the word of God and he had the very power and presence of God there with him. Well, after the wilderness experience, Jesus is ready to begin calling disciples to him, right? Now, you have to understand that back in those times, it was pretty common For a rabbi or a teacher to choose a student and say, you're going to be my student, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to disciple you. Sometimes that student would follow the teacher around. Sometimes that student would even live with the teacher. 
So for Jesus to go around and say, come follow me, you know, we, if we don't understand the culture, that might seem like a very odd thing to do. He calls 12 people, and it's like a little mother duck with all their little baby ducks, right? Walking behind him. It's like, what is this? Jesus with 12 men following him. That just seems so odd. I mean, we wouldn't do that in our day and age. But back then, it was quite common. And so when he called them, at one point in John 138, they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? That makes sense if you understand that when you're called to be a disciple, you go and you hang out with that teacher. You maybe even live with that teacher. Where are you staying? And that was, in essence, them saying, yes, we'll come. We'll come follow you. We'll, we'll be your disciple. We will learn from you. We think you are a worthy teacher, so yes, we will follow you. Jesus, though, is asking them to go beyond what they know, to go, go beyond what they trust in their own life, to trust him instead of these other things that they have trusted in their life. And by saying yes, they are agreeing to abandon their careers and their families and the futures as they had seen their future, right? Somehow they experienced in Jesus' presence, they saw in Jesus someone who could lead them into that place that God had created them to be and to go. They felt a lacking, they felt a longing, and they felt like Jesus could help them meet that. Have you ever felt that in your life? Have you ever felt that, that there's something missing or that you're not quite going in the right direction or quite doing the right thing? I mean, it's not just when you're growing up and, and choosing a college and choosing a career. I mean, all the periods of our life, right? When you're in retirement, you're still kind of like, am I doing the right thing? Should I just be sitting on my, in my chair watching movies all day? Maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe that's not what God's call is for my life, right? Should I be gardening all the time? Should I, what should I be doing, right? You ever felt that longing? What should I be doing? Whatever stage you are in your life, Jesus says, come follow me, and I will help you to know what I have for you to do. And God will lead you to that place. But think about this. Just because they said, follow me, they followed him? Isn't that still quite something? I mean, they didn't really know much about Jesus. They were leaving what they knew for someone and something that they didn't know. What's so magnificent about Jesus as we talk about him over this week and the next couple of weeks is there was something about Jesus that drew people to him. Don't we see that happen even today? I mean, you hear about cults all the time, right? And what is the one common denominator in a cult, right? You have a strong, upfront leader who is very charismatic and draws people to him, right? And somehow, sometimes you wonder, how can you get all these people to do these things that they're doing in these communes, in these cults? I mean, if you've ever heard about these cults, they do some crazy things. And you think, how could that ever happen? How could they agree to do that which the leader is calling them to do? Right? You hear a cult leader, and he has all these wives, and they're all these, these daughters, these children of these families that just gave their daughter to this leader. How could they get... Him to, to lead them to do that because he, there's something about that person that's charismatic, right? And in that case, that person used it for a very negative, terrible thing. But Jesus was God in the flesh. And so when people encountered him, you can see that in our second story here this morning too. When people encountered him, there was something about Jesus that drew them to him. And I tell you, 
If you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. But if you don't know Jesus, if you give yourself over to Jesus, there's something about Jesus that once you say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you, that he just draws you to himself. He gives you peace and joy and purpose and meaning and, and power and giftedness. And, and all these amazing things come to us because of who Jesus is. And the disciples experience this. But Jesus challenged them even more when he said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, this is really the key right here to being a disciple. You might wonder, what does it really mean to be a disciple? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? This is the key right here. We lose our life in the sense that we say, okay, God, I had my own selfish desires. I had my own thoughts. But I know that you're the creator of my life and you have purpose for me. So I'm going to give that up and I'm going to follow you and you're going to direct me to that place that I need to be. And you're going to lead me to do what you want me to do. And I guarantee you, when you're walking that path, there's nothing more meaningful and more joyful and there's no more peace that you will have than to know that you are in the will of God because God is fully present in you and with you and empowering you in those moments. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to abandon ourselves in that way. It's a struggle to give our full selves to Jesus. We struggle to give up control. We believe in Jesus. We we love what Jesus is doing and what Jesus wants to do in the world, but we don't know. Can I really follow him with that kind of abandon? We want security. We, we need security. We, we cling to security. Abandoning ourselves to Jesus in this way is not secure. It's unknown. And so we struggle to lose our life so that we will truly find the real life that God has for us. There's a wonderful book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And in this book, it basically talks about Jesus' strategy of ministry. See, Jesus knew that his ministry was going to be short, only three years. I mean, could you imagine if someone gave you a job and you said, you have three years to do this, but at the end of that three years, you have to have it so that it is ready to just go on for the rest of eternity, right? Three years, go, right? And that's what Jesus was working with. He had three years to prepare the people around him so that when he left, and he knew he was leaving, so that when he left, it was ready to continue on and you grow. And so Jesus had a three-pronged approach. The first step was calling disciples. And he said, okay, I'm going to do ministry. I'm going to do works. I'm going to do things by the power of God, and you're going to watch me do it. So they would follow him around, and he would do things. So read the scriptures, right? Read through the gospels. He would do things, and the disciples would watch him do it, and they'd be amazed at what he was doing, right? Wow, how did you bring that person back from death? How did you heal that person? How did you save that person? How did you take out the evil spirits from that person? How, you know, they were like always asking questions, weren't they? Jesus teaches how to pray and, and all this, right? So first step was they followed him around. He did the ministry and they watched. Then he turned the tables. He said, ah, okay, now, guess what? You get to go do the ministry and I'm going to watch you. 
Now that must have, you ever done that? You ever have to do something while someone else is watching you? Maybe you're like a student teacher, or maybe you're like an intern, or you know, you had a job when we were kids and growing up, and our dads always said, do this, and then you, my dad would always like come and redo it after I did it, right? <laughs> it's not fun to have someone watch you. But the good thing about having someone watch you is that if you get frustrated, or if you struggle, if you don't do something quite right, that person can can process it with you, help you, right, to learn it better. And that's what Jesus did. He'd send them out, they'd do ministry, he'd do this, they'd do ministry. You know, one time they were, they were trying to pray for an evil spirit out, and uh, Jesus came back, and they're like, Jesus, we couldn't do it, what's going on? It's like, oh, this kind of can only come out with prayer and fasting, right? And so he's constantly processing with them the ministry that they were supposed to do. Why? Because he knew when they left, they are going to still be there and called to do the ministry, right? Remember what happened right after Jesus died? Where were the disciples? They were huddled away in a dark room, afraid to come out, weren't they? Those were the people that are supposed to carry on the kingdom of God. <laughs> no wonder we needed a Pentecost. No wonder we needed the Holy Spirit coming, right? We all need that power of the Spirit coming upon us so that we realize, wait a minute, I don't have to do this on my own. Whatever God calls me to do, he empowers me and enables me to do it. And so the third step was that Jesus left and the disciples went out and did the ministry. See, this is why Jesus still calls people to him today. We must become disciples and be discipled and grow in our faith. And we must be committed. One of the things our church, I want our church to be committed to doing is discipling others. Look for someone that you can come alongside and build a friendship with and help each other grow in your faith. Help each other grow in your giftedness. Help each other grow in the work that you're doing for the kingdom of God. We need to be discipled and we need to disciple. Why? Because the, the key to the kingdom of God is calling people to follow Jesus, helping them grow in their faith, and getting them to the place where they can begin to do ministry on their own. That's the only way the kingdom will flourish. We're kind of struggling right now, aren't we? The world is kind of winning. Satan is seeming to win right now because so many Christians are, have gotten content in their faith. You know where the Christianity is growing the, the fastest? Look for a country where the persecution is the greatest, and that's where Christianity is growing the fastest. Why is it not growing so fast here? Because we have freedom of religion, right? We can worship any way we want, anywhere we want, anytime we want, right? So we become content. We become complacent. We become lazy in our faith. We don't feel the urgency of making disciples, leading people to Jesus, helping them to grow in their faith so they can get to the place that way they can make disciples and they can do ministry. That's the key to the kingdom. That was the key to Jesus' ministry. Well, next, we see that Jesus begins to preach, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the message we need to feel urgency for. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We need all to believe, we need all to hear the message, and that is your job and my job to get this message out. So you probably remember the story of Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was a religious leader. 
He was a leader of the Sanhedrin. He had a very powerful and prominent position. But he became a follower of Jesus. Not quite a disciple, but a follower. He believed in Jesus. He liked what Jesus was doing. But he couldn't really fully commit. And the reason why we know he didn't really fully commit at first was why? When he finally wanted to see Jesus, when did he go see him? He saw him at night. When Jesus was alone. Many times Nicodemus was around Jesus. Could have talked to Jesus any time. But he chose to go at night. Why? So he could go in secret. No one else would know. Because he knew that if people saw him with Jesus, they would start questioning, why are you talking to Jesus by yourself? What's going on there? And if he ever really became a follower, it would cost him. It would cost him his position. It would cost him his status. It would cost him his friendship. It would cost him being in the Sanhedrin. And so before he made a commitment, he really wanted to, to dialogue with Jesus. So he comes home at night, and he, he has this conversation with Jesus and in this conversation, we see that you can't be a secret admirer of Jesus. You can't hang back and be a secret admirer. You can't just like who Jesus is or like what Jesus does and be a follower of Jesus. You can't do that. Because Jesus says to him, John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love Nicodemus' response. Do you remember his response? It's so, so humorous to me. How can someone go back into their mother's womb? That doesn't make sense to me. And be born again. You know, that, you know once you're big, you can't go back into your mother's womb. You can't be born again. And so they have this conversation, this back and forth, so finally, Jesus says, no, first you're born physically. Then you need to be born spiritually. You don't automatically become children of God, right? John 1 tells us that the way we become children of God is by believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. You must be born again spiritually. You must believe in me, Jesus says, to be born again. See, there's a difference between making a decision and making a commitment. There shouldn't be, but there really is. And one way, let me, I want to illustrate this for you for a moment. You, Billy Graham crusades, right? One of the big things that Billy Graham did at the end of his crusade, right, was he would have what's called an altar call. So we talk about Jesus, you talk about how you need Jesus in your life, you talk about how you have sin, how God can take away that sin, how God can bring you into relationship with God again. And at the end of that time, we say, if you don't know Jesus, if you want Jesus in your life, come forward, come to the front. Make a visible commitment to Jesus. Come forward and pray. And so all these people would come forward, right? And then he'd lead them in a prayer, accepting Jesus. And then they'd go back home and they'd go back into their, their world, their life, and how many people just fell away, fell away, not following Jesus anymore? Why? Because they had made a decision in the moment. Maybe they were emotional. Maybe they were humbled for the moment. They made the decision, yes, I want Jesus. But they didn't give, them, give him their heart. They didn't make a commitment to Jesus. Jesus, I want you in my life. I want you to change my life. I want you to guide my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to lead me in my life. I want you to show me what you want me to Right? They didn't make a commitment to Jesus. 
Have you made that commitment? I mean, not just, yes, Jesus, I like you. Yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I mean, have you made that commitment? If your life is not being changed and transformed by God, then you have not made a commitment. If you're not willing every day to say, Jesus, whatever you have for me to do today, I will do it. You have not made a commitment. And later we see that Nicodemus made a commitment to Jesus, right? Jesus was called before the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus stands up for Jesus when he says in John 7, 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? In essence, he's saying, let Jesus speak. Let Jesus speak. He's standing up for Jesus. You're supporting Jesus. We see that Nicodemus' faith starts to interfere in his work. And that's a good thing. Nicodemus' faith interferes with his work. Our faith in Jesus should interfere with our, our life, our family, our work. All that we do, our relationship with Jesus should interfere with our life. Does that make sense? Interfere with our life. Well, there's so much in chapter 23. I just want to talk about one more thing very, very briefly, and that is Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And this is wonderful. In John 4, 9, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, oh, there's supposed to be an H there, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for, <laughs> sorry about those disciples, huh? Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, this woman comes to the well. She comes in the noontime because no one's there. She's, she doesn't want to be around other people. people. She's, she's an outcast of society. Jesus knows all about her, right? He knows that she's been married five times and she's living with a man. And you can only imagine what that was like back in Jesus' time for a woman to be in that place. And also, Jews and Samaritans didn't have dealings with each other. And also, women and men usually didn't have conversations with each other, especially one-on-one. So Jesus asks her for a drink and just, just astounds her, like, why are you speaking to me? But the reason, the, 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 for the sake that she responded, opened the conversation for Jesus to respond back, right? Sometimes we just need to start a conversation with people. And as they respond, you know, a great technique of talking with people is you talk with them, and, and if they start to talk about their life, then you can talk about, you can mirror what they talk about. You can start talking about your life. They start to talk about their family, you start to talk about your family, and then slowly you work how Jesus impacts. Because if, if you're really making the commitment to Jesus, then Jesus has impacted your life. And so almost everything you talk about should include Jesus, right? Because Jesus is in all of your life. And Jesus, one thing I, I do want to say, don't start a conversation by attacking someone or, you know, like if you knew that they're living with someone, so you're living with someone, huh? <laughs> okay, don't start a conversation that way. You know, for Jesus, somehow he got away with it, right? You've had five husbands and you're living with someone who's not your husband. I mean, what a way to start a conversation, right? I mean, it usually doesn't go very far, when you start that way, right, they get defensive, they get angry, right? But there's something about Jesus that drew the woman in to this conversation. 
She felt comfortable. She felt um, compassion in his eyes. She felt the love that he had for her. She didn't feel judgment in his statement. I've experienced that on, on many occasions. Sometimes just listening to people is an amazing skill, right? And there's been times when, because I've wanted to know, I really care about people. So who, tell me about yourself. What's going on? And so we start a conversation, and they tell me, and I just listen to them, and I draw them in. And I mean, I'm not purposely doing this. It's just my way, I guess. And next thing I know, they're like laying their burdens. They're like pouring out their soul to my life, right? Oh, you know, I'm going through this divorce. And all of a sudden, you know, I met them for you know, 10 minutes, and they're telling me about that, right? But sometimes someone just needs someone to listen to them, to care for them in a non-judgmental way, in an unconditional loving way. And it draws them in, and you have an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. See, I can't solve their problems. I can't fix their problems. But I can lead them to the one who can help them deeply, and that is Jesus. And that's true for you, too. You don't need to go around trying to fix everybody's problems, trying to solve everybody's problems, but you can lead them to the one that can help them, that can empower them, that can forgive them, that can comfort them. And the woman feels this, and they have this conversation, and in the end, she believes in Jesus. And then the scripture says she leaves her water pot, which represents her sinful life, she leaves her water pot. She runs into the town, right? She's an outcast. She's not even supposed to be around people, right? She runs into the town. She is so excited for how Jesus has transformed and changed her life, forgiven her and draw, drawn her into the very love of God. She is so overwhelmed by this that she shouts out to the people, you have to meet this person I just met. He has changed my life. And now she's become a disciple, and she's gone from being a disciple to being a witness. But it isn't forced. It wasn't like Jesus said, now go be a witness. You know, sometimes we tell, I, I tell you that all the time, right? Go witness, right? Leave this church and go witness, you know? And, and I try to tell you to do that. But you know what? It should come naturally. You know how it comes naturally? It comes naturally when it just bubbles out of you what Jesus is doing in your life. She was so excited He's forgiven me. He loves me. He's changing me already, and I just met him. And so all the people came back in, right? Read the underlined parts with me. So the woman left her water pot jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Who gets excited about that, right? <laughs> he told me all that I've ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Because she was a witness of what, how, what Jesus had done for her, what Jesus has changed in her life, she became a witness and they wanted to see him for themselves. That's how you share your faith. How is Jesus changing you? How has Jesus changed you? How are you different because you know Jesus? Maybe you're more loving, maybe more giving, maybe, maybe you're more forgiving. Whatever it is, share that with other people. And they will long to know Jesus. That's who Jesus is. See, the problem is, is that people don't see who Jesus is because we don't show them who Jesus is, right? We don't live with joy and peace and, and patience and kind of all the fruits of the Spirit. We don't oftentimes 
love unconditionally. We don't forgive like we should forgive, right? And so we don't really exemplify Jesus. And so people don't get to see who Jesus is. I've talked to you guys before. I know your stories. I know God has changed you. Share your story with other people so that they can say, come and see this man. Come and meet Jesus. He is like no other. He is our Savior. This chapter gives us an important understanding of who Jesus is. I mean, in chapter 22, we talked about Jesus humbling himself and coming to earth, right? Taking on flesh. And in here we see Jesus going out and calling people to himself. And calling people to be disciples. And empowering them to be those disciples. And changing people's lives so that they can indeed, or in turn, bring others so that their lives could be changed. Who do you know who needs Jesus? I hope you will tell your story to them. Have you made that full commitment to Jesus? I hope so. And if not, I encourage you to do that all the more today. Let's pray.